Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. What I want to do with when we're at Romans 8, and we could be in Romans 8 for a very long time, um, if you've got a Bible, and I do hope you, you, you do bring your Bible, and I do hope if your Bible's on your phone, um, as uh, I, I have an, uh, an addiction in this as well, I hope you get the social media off. I know how bad it is because my daughter who lives in the Blue Mountains for a birthday present gave me a phone cage uh, to use when she was present. So, um, But we're going to look at Romans 8 uh, and in three sections. And what I want to do is to make sure about things. I, I'm going to ask you uh, questions. I've, since, I start, since I started with the Dawkins letters, I'd go to places and people would start shouting things out in disagreement, which I actually really liked. Um, although sometimes it could get a bit heated, but it certainly made it much more interesting and everyone stayed awake. So in this instance, I want to ask you questions, and you please feel free to ask me any question. Now, I had a whole load of uh, slides and PowerPoints, and I thought, no, I don't want to do that, because I, I want to stick with what, what I, I mean, I use PowerPoint and stuff all the time, so I don't think it's bad, but I'm just very concerned about where we're at in terms of our culture and context, and I want to understand where you're at. I'm a foreigner. I'm an outsider. I don't know. I, I didn't even know that this place existed. Uh, I know nothing about Shepperton. I know nothing about you. Um, and that means if you hear something from me, you can't take any of it personally. Just put me down as being uh, ignorant. But I don't want to be ignorant. I, I want to learn. And I, I think that this is the amazing thing about the Bible. So one of the objections my atheist friends have is this. Why would you read a book that's written by, you know... 2,000-year-old illiterate desert shepherds, to which my, my answer is immediately, well, if they're illiterate, how could they write? Because that's, you know, that's the way I go. It's called logic and Scottish common sense philosophy, which is actually a philosophy. It, what it is, by the way, is if, if it quacks like a duck, if it waddles like a duck, then it probably is a duck. Uh, and, but I, they say, no, it's just an old book. It's an old book. Here's the most amazing thing about the Bible. I've been teaching it for 40 years, and every time I keep learning new stuff. And this is God's word. We're reading, Paul wrote this to the Romans, city of a million people, city with a lot of issues, a lot of problems, great gap between rich and poor, pollution, climate change, plague, and so on. It's entirely as relevant to us in, what do you call this area, by the way? Shepperton, yeah? Strath, Strathbogie. That is so great. Because, of course, Strathbogie comes from Scotland, obviously. Uh, Strath, Strath is really, well, Strath is a valley, a vale, you know. And uh, Strathbogie. I cannot believe, that is wonderful. So this is, I'm in Strathbogie. Oh, I'm so at home. Um, I, by the way, can you help me with this as well? What's a grazier warning? Sheep grazier warning. I was on my phone this morning. What's that? Sheep on the road. Sheep on the road. Oh, right, okay. So, ah, it's even better. No? Cold weather. Cold weather, so you've got to watch out for your sheep. Is that what it is? Okay. 
All right. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, I mean, currently with there's sheep. My my granddad uh, was uh, a shepherd, and my dad looked after pigs, and I became a calfman for a while before I went in for uh, the ministry. The only animals we don't do are cats because they're of the devil. Now that <laughs> now that that's instantly divided. <laughs> you can tell that straight away. That's about the worst thing I could say apart from when I went down to Melbourne one time and I didn't know. I just, honestly, I didn't know. And I, I was kind of, kind of winding them up and I said, do you know this? I said, it's great to be in Melbourne. It's such a beautiful city. It's such a great city. But I'm looking forward to getting back to the capital for a real cup of coffee and some decent sport. <laughs> and there was no way I was getting the room back after that. They just, they weren't going to forgive me. But we are in this context, in this world where God's word applies not just to those of us who are believers, but it's God's word for people today. And that's what we need to try and communicate. People don't see that. There's a big gap. So they come into church and you might think they hear. And actually, what a lot of what's happening is they're just hearing cliche after cliche after cliche, which they don't understand. You know, so for example, even belief in God. If someone said to me, I don't believe in God, you know what I would say? I would say, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in. I don't believe in a God who does this and a God who does that. And a God. I said, well, neither do I. Now let me tell you about the God I do believe in. Or asking people to believe in Jesus. Standing up at the front and going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, it's just meaningless. You want people to see Jesus. And in your church, when people come in, the thing that you want, the absolute maximum that you want, the, the, the goal, the ideal, is that people, to say in, in terms of the 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, truly God is amongst you. There's something going on here. There's something real here. And you can't do that by faking it, and you can't do it by saying it. They have to experience it. They have to see it. And that's why the community of the church is so important. So there's a guy called Pascal who uh, wrote a book in French called Pensées. And obviously you all speak French fluently, so you can get it in the French. Uh, but you can get it in English. It's brilliant. And Pascal basically said this, and I think this is true. And he, he's writing 17th century. So I think this is true for today. To reach modern people, he said, first of all, don't go and try and prove to people that it's true. First of all, you have to show them it's reasonable. In other words, these people are not nuts. Uh, my wife's a mental health social worker. She doesn't like me using these technical terms. But these people are not crazy. There's something here. Secondly, you show them it's beautiful. Wow. There's something good here. Because thirdly, you show them it's good. And in Australia today, I'm utterly amazed. You're not as bad as we are in Scotland. But when people hear Christians sometimes, it used to be that Christians were kind of, well, it's fine, it's indifferent. But now we're the bad guys, as Steve McAlpine's wonderful book describes it being the bad guys. And you are the, the bad guys. I'll give you an example. I became a Christian when I was a teenager, about 17. I didn't know what to do, right? You're a Christian, you don't know what to do. And my parents were really wise. They just let us do whatever we did. So we played... Football, that's the real one, 
that you kick the ball with your foot, you don't pick it up with your hand. That would be called handball. Uh, again, this is the Scottish common sense philosophy. Um, we played football, which some people here call soccer, which is an American thing, which we have nothing to do with. Um, so we played football and we listened to records. And these were things that were on discs. And you put them on a record player. And if you'd held on to them, and you're older and you'd held on to them, they're worth a fortune now because they're back in fashion. So we would listen to real music like Led Zeppelin and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, if you haven't discovered these things, you will um, because you'll get really good taste. And then about three or four of us became Christians and we thought, why don't we discuss the Bible as well? We didn't know you had to do a course or be signed up in an official church group or anything like that. We just opened up our Bibles after playing a game of football, listened to a bit of Led Zepp and Black Sabbath and whatever, uh, maybe not appropriate for Christians, and then we just started discussing the Bible. And I remember the very first Bible study I ever did was 1 Corinthians 13, and one of my friends was sitting there and she said, I want that. I want that, love. And she just became a Christian that night. I thought that was normal Christianity. I thought people became Christians in that. It was just, just normal. You tell people, they become Christians. And we grew. There was about 30 or 40 of us meeting in our house and just during the summer, every week. And then one day, the door, there was a knock on the door. This man came in, his, his teenage son was there. He says, is my boy here? I said, yeah. Right, he said, and he banged in. And imagine a teenage boy, imagine how embarrassing this is. Pointing to his son, you, get home now. I thought you were at an all-night party. Now, for us, an all-night party meant drugs, drink, and sex. And he's saying to his teenage son, I thought you were at an all-night party. Then I discover you're at one of these Christian things. You are grounded. You are in so much trouble. Get home. And I thought, wow. You'd rather your son? I've been to these parties. I used to go to them all the time. That's what you want? And you think it's dangerous, him discussing the Bible? And I've experienced in my life in that, that in, incredible reaction that you get when God really is at work. You see a real pushback. So if you're wanting peace, by the way, I wouldn't be a Christian in terms of... And if you want to, you, your church to grow, you are going to have trouble. Let me say that. I've never known a church grow without losing people. And that seems such a paradox, but it's true. And I would also say this. When God begins to work in your life, it's actually quite scary. Especially collectively as a church. Because I, the churches I go to in Sydney, the Sydney Anglican churches, they're full of shiny, happy people. Okay, they don't clap too much and certainly don't do the arm raising stuff, you know, because they want to show they're not Hillsong, but um, even though it's in the Bible, but the, the, you get the impression that one guy said to me, I couldn't go there because everyone's perfect. And I go, no, they're not. You have no idea what's going on underneath the surface in this church. You have no idea the tensions between leadership. And I don't even know. I just know. You know, I, you have no idea the people who are sitting in front singing about Jesus who struggle with pornography or the person who's really struggling with depression. You have no idea about any of these things because it's for real. This is for real. And the Bible, what the Bible does is it addresses things for real. And that's where we need hope. And that's where I think presenting a false hope or talking about hope without defining what it is doesn't really help. So if we go through Romans 8, I'm just going to uh, mention this and uh, I look at a watch which is completely pointless because I always forget it. I also want to say I'm a postmodern Presbyterian preacher and what that means is 
words mean nothing. So when I use the word finally, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> it might be finally my first point, you know. But um, Let's go to, to Romans 8. And it begins, uh, the whole context here is Paul's been talking about the struggle he has as a Christian with sin. And instantly, I know the difference that makes to a non-Christian coming in when instead of hearing Christians standing up saying, we are the perfect people, they hear Christians saying, we're as screwed up as the rest of you. One guy um, came to see me and said, Deva, I am a Christian and me and my fiance, we, we, we used to go to church, we stopped going. There's a lot of people like this, we're really damaged, um, but we do want to come to your church. We're not very sure though, can you tell us what it's like? I said, what, in a soundbite? He said, yeah, give me a one-liner. I, I didn't know what to say, so I just said, well, we're a bunch of screwed up people in a screwed up world with a great saviour. And he looked at me and he said, I'm in. I said, why? He said, because my church before was perfect. We didn't admit we were screwed up. But we are. We are. And you know this, if God did this, if God right now opened up our hearts so that everyone could see what was on our hearts, none of us, we'd be out of here. We'd be gone. And that should bring a certain degree of humility. Because I don't know what people think about you in, in, in Shepparton, think about the church. How many churches are there in Shepparton? I mean, I am genuinely ignorant, so this would be... 15. How many would be evangelical? Eight or nine. What's the population? You're doing well. 40,000. Um, in school, how many? what percentage of, of children or young people would go to church? Roughly? Any idea? Low. But what does, what does low... Like my daughter was the only one in a class of 40 that went. Would it be as low as that or higher? Less than 5%. Okay. So, I don't know what the impression people have of church is, but if they get it from the media, it's, it's, it's not going to be really positive. If, if they get it from the kindly Christian who lives next door to them, it may be a lot more positive. Or if they remember that their parents used to be religious and they were all right, it may be okay. If they themselves have experienced some kind of religious abuse, or they've had a very negative experience, they may even react with anger and hatred. Um, and if God's beginning to work in their life, they may even react like that as well. But I think that um, the first thing that stands out for me that is wonderful about the hope that Christians have is verse 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's just no condemnation. And I think a lot of people feel condemned. Now, our society gets that wrong. Because our society says, oh, you accept people just as they are. Well, that was no message of hope to me as a young person, purely and simply, because I was screwed up. And I didn't want to be accepted as I was. I wanted to be different. And Jesus doesn't say, I'll accept you as you are, and you just carry on and do whatever you want. I love you anyway. That's just that is rubbish. It's useless. What Jesus says is, I'll accept you. I know who you are even better than you do yourself, but I'll change you. Um, you've got an anti-conversion therapy law here. Is it in? Yeah, it is anti-conversion therapy law. Do you know, um, this, that conversion therapy law has nothing to do with LGBT. It's aimed specifically 
at Christians. And I say that because you'll never see it implemented against Muslims who are far stronger against LGBT than most Christians. But it's done, the anti-conversion therapy law, yes it is about various things, but I keep saying, anyone experience conversion therapy, what is it? And there are, there is some of it that you can look at and say is really bad, but I always, I just turn this around and say, I want people to be converted, but I think we all need to be converted. You know, it's not just one particular group. So there's no condemnation. John 3, we know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Now, as Christians, we know that people are not going to become Christians until they see the need. You don't go and see a doctor unless you're sick. But we then think that we can convict people of sin. But we can't. It's the work of the Spirit. You know, people talk about the Spirit a lot. I I don't hear this often said in a lot of churches. But the work of the Spirit is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ means nothing to people who think they're not condemned anyway. But here's, I've discovered this. As a non-Christian, I found it remarkably easy to believe that God loved me. As a Christian, sometimes I found it remarkably difficult. And that's why Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I got up one morning and I was absolutely just gutted about myself and my own sin. And I just thought, I, I, I can't, I, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I can't cope. I, the, I'm such a hypocrite. So many things that are wrong. And I read in Isaiah 6 when the angel comes from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips. Isaiah had said, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And then the angel comes and said, see, your sin is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. Christians are not condemned. No condemnation now, I dread. That is, that is the most liberating thing possible. And we have to live that so that other people can see it, that it is actually true. And then we're free. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's a law of sin and death. We, we all die. I'm, I'm going to say a little bit more about death in a moment. But um, that's a law. It's an absolute principle. We all do things that are wrong. It's an absolute principle. We're all dying. But we've been set free from that law. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the, by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now, what's being said there? This is the freedom. Um, When sometimes I go to schools, uh, I can't believe that this is still the most famous Scottish film, but some of the boys will ask me, can you shout out, freedom! Like Mel Gibson in in Braveheart. I said, yeah, in that genuinely authentic Aussie Scottish accent. Um, By the way, I discovered this week something brilliant. There's such a thing as a Scozzi do you know what a Scozzi is? A Scottish Australian. So I'm a Scozzi. I, I, absolutely, I absolutely love that. And if anyone else is a Scozzi, then let's form a club. Uh, you're, you're right at the top. Um, but that freedom, 
Now, here's an irony. Our society wants to live in freedom. People say, you've got to be free to be yourself. And we are condemning people to jail, to emotional jails, to psychological jails, to physical jails. I mean by that in terms of things like poverty and so on. The freedom comes from Christ. I think of a woman in my first church who... uh, came to church, became a believer, then had a breakdown. And in a small community, how big is Shepparton? 40,000? Yeah, well, we we were only 4,000. So in a small community, when people go to church and start having breakdowns, of course, the minister gets a reputation. I was known as the man who drives women mad, which in some circumstances would be an obvious compliment if I was doing a Lynx advert or something. But uh, it was was, was not, not something that you want in your ministry. Because we had about three breakdowns. But you know what happened? I went to see the psychiatrist. He said, Dave, I can't tell you because obviously it's patient. He said, just go look at her past. Go look at her past and you'll find out. He said, you've done nothing here. In fact, what you're doing is great. He said, I'm not a Christian, but what you people are doing in the church for this lady is fabulous. All you need to do is help her comb her hair. What do you mean? He said, the normal stuff that you take for granted. Right now, she's going through all of this. And you know what had happened? 30 years earlier, when she was 16... Her boyfriend had forced her to have an abortion and she felt incredibly guilty. And what had happened was after those 30, all that guilt that was penned up came out and she she, she cracked under it, but she was healed because she came to realize that though she condemned herself, God did not condemn her. God had forgiven her. And to be liberated from that is the most wonderful thing. I mean, you're here and some of you will be laboring with sins that you think you'll never be rid of. But you cannot be condemned. And so you are free. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Second Corinthians 3.17. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we are set free because Christ was condemned. Everything to me always comes back to the cross. And this is why I do not understand Christians who want to downplay the cross. It's because of the cross. It's because he died. We don't die, at least in that ultimate sense. The law was weakened. You can't. So when you get, you get, be very wary of this. Be very wary of thinking, oh, if only Australia followed Christian principles, we'd be fine. No. Australia actually needs more Christians. And I hope from that you will get Christian principles and laws which benefit everyone. But telling people to obey the law, it doesn't work. You all know that. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm not the only one. You know, as a kid, if I saw a sign that said, wet paint, do not touch, that was the absolute guarantee I was going to touch it. Of course I was. You know, um, it, it's, we're, we just like that. And what the law did was it showed us what was right and wrong. There's nothing wrong with the law. Paul's been arguing there's nothing wrong with the law. But he's saying the law can't save you, but it can show you that you need to be saved. And we are condemned in our human bodies. We, we all think, oh yeah, I, I, can, I can handle my body. You know, I can, um, you know, I can fast. I can eat the right food. I can go to the gym. I can do this. I can control my thoughts. I can avoid pornography. I can do this, 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 and this. And yet we struggle. We struggle because we're condemned in our bodies. And yet it's because of a body a physical body, Christ's physical body, that the condemnation is taken away. 
I love, uh, this is one of the old Puritans says this. A vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's, but is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as the result of what is done in and by Christ. So my son works in a housing scheme in Dundee. You call that projects, is that a housing project? You know, um, social housing, you know, council housing. Uh, It's funny, that's become a dirty word as though, oh, you live in social housing, whereas council housing was what everyone wanted because it was a house for people. And, you know, these great schemes were built. And the idea was you provide housing for people. And it's um, people think if we just do that, then everything will be fine. But everything is not fine. And so now governments, what they want to do is they say, this is how we deal with drug addiction. We'll pour all of this money in. We'll do this. And sadly, middle-class Christians go into these housing schemes and they think the way we proclaim the gospel is having a soup kitchen. No, it's not. That may be a fruit of the gospel. It may be something that we do. But don't patronize working-class people by thinking, first of all, we'll give them food and then they'll want to be like us. Nobody would want to be like you. Sorry, lovely people as you are. That's not the point of it. What changes? So we had one guy, we called him the two million pound, four million dollar guy. Because that's what it cost the government to look after him. He was 32 years old when he was converted because he was in and out of jail every year. Because he was on drugs, he went on all the programs, the methadone, everything. Um, to feed his habit, he would steal cars. He, he gave me lots of advice about how to steal cars and how, how easy it was and uh, all the various scams that he used. And... Uh, when he was converted, that's two million quid saved. You know, you have six people in one of these housing schemes genuinely become Christians. You turn the whole place upside down. It completely radically transforms it. I would argue that in Shepparton, if you saw a handful of people and then maybe a hundred people truly become believers, you don't need to have 50% of the population. There's a ripple effect. So my favorite verse is in Acts 17 and verse 6, where Paul and um, Timothy and others are accused of, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here now. I think the NIV is these men who've caused trouble all over the world, but I prefer the turn the world upside down. So your aim as a church is actually to see that Shepparton will be turned upside down and changed. And that's... That's a shaking process, you know, and, and yet that's what happens. So we need a radical change in people, and that comes through Christ. And then it's the flesh and the spirit as you go through this. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires, but those who live according to the, the, the spirit have their mindset on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now that contrast is a dramatic one, and this pleasing and not pleasing God. You are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Sadly, there's too much division amongst Christians about the Spirit. How, how do you think you can worship God except in spirit and in truth? How do you think you become a Christian except by the Holy Spirit? How do you think you can serve your community without the Holy Spirit? How do you think you can evangelize without the Holy Spirit? I, I had a church that I'd go outside and there's a graveyard. 
And I knew, I absolutely knew, that me speaking to living people in front of me was as useless as me going out and speaking in the graveyard because the living people are dead in sins and trespasses and no matter how well it's presented, no matter how clever I argued, no matter all that kind of stuff, unless God's spirit was at work, nothing would happen. But what I loved was this, that God's spirit is at work. God's word won't return to him void. You know, sometimes we get overwhelmed by the sense of opposition that there is. And I do think, by the way, that I, I read a lot on stuff, and I do think that Victoria is in a particularly, going down a particularly dangerous path. But the one sits in heaven laughs. He laughs because it's pathetic, the opposition to him. And you don't need to worry because you have his spirit and you have his word and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And Christians are the very last people who should cower in fear in that regard. We fear only the Lord. That's why we're so dangerous. That's why Xi Jinping uh, wants to get rid of, of, of Christians because he sees the harm that can be done. It's, it's, you know, somebody said to me once, David, I was a, he was a non-Christian journalist. He said, he works for the ABC. He said, man, he said, you're fearless. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I, I'm, I, I'm afraid of quite a few things, actually, to be honest. Flying being one of them. You know, spiders being another. Kangaroos another. So why did I come to Australia? I don't know. <laughs> and do you know this? Kangaroos. I, I thought kangaroos, like, I'm, like all Brits, I think everything in Australia can kill you, um, except kangaroos and koalas who are meant to be really cuddly. And I was out West Sydney and there was a big giant roo and I, I thought, I'll go over and say hello and these people ran over and tackled me. I said, don't, he'll kill you. I said, come on. He said, you're kidding. You see what these things do? So I thought, oh yeah, true, everything in Australia kills you. But, but I think that, that this, this whole aspect of we don't need to be afraid because God's given us his word and God's given us his spirit. And we can have this absolute confidence. You see, this is where our hope comes from. I think sometimes we project Christianity as though we're terrified. And we project it from fear and people see that. But I think, and sometimes we do it through a kind of false hope. You know, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm going to be happy and good and wealthy and, you know, marry a millionaire and, you know, have 10 kids but be able to afford a nanny and work a full-time job and be prime minister at the same time. You know, we sometimes present that image of, of, of Christianity, whereas the real image that really impresses people is, I'm the same as you guys. I bleed, I suffer, I even get depression, but I've got real hope, real hope. When, see, this is the difficulty with the word hope, because when the world uses the word hope, we mean things like, I hope Scotland will win the World Cup. Or, you know, even more ridiculous, I hope Australia will win the Ashes. No. But, you know, we, we hope certain things. I hope if I ask this girl out, she's going to say, yeah. You know, I, I hope. So we use hope as wishful thinking. It's really important to understand when the Bible uses the word hope, it uses it as a dead cert. It's an absolute. It's what we base our life on. So sometimes, you know, you might sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But that's because we've got this. We've got this. And, you know, even through death. Now, I don't, you may not have heard, but a um, particular hero of mine, Tim Keller, he died last night. And he's gone to be with the Lord. 
And, you know, his last words were just to his family. He said, you've lost nothing. I've lost nothing. You know, and the more I've been thinking about that this morning, because I'm actually quite upset because Tim Keller was a real help to me in lots of ways. And I'm thinking, Lord, why are you taking him just now? And just, well, he's done. He's, you know, this is what he lived for. And we can all have that. That's what it says in this word. Um, I love it. You know, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, verse 11, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That's just such a beautiful thing. I don't know. How do you bury people here? Is it a cremation or is it a burial? Burial site. Yeah, well, I love that. I love, I, I, crem, I hate crematoriums. I find them manically depressive, depressing. And I was in a, a Highland village thing and we used to go to, uh, somebody would die and it's, it was a very traditional thing. The men, sorry about the sexism, but the men would carry the coffin to the graveyard. And it was about a mile and they would carry it, every, take it in turns. You know, it was very military. It was very, it was, it was remarkable. The whole village would turn out. And then you'd stand at the graveside in this windswept hill and in an area where a temperature like this would be midsummer. And you're standing there and um, as the coffin goes in, I remember when it happened with my father-in-law, this old traditional minister, like black from head to toe, dog collar, the whole works, a black hat. And he went, oh, well, on the day of resurrection, there's going to be some party in this graveyard. <laughs> and I started laughing. I thought, the idea of you partying, is <laughs> that, that's a miracle in itself. But I just thought, what a beautiful thought. What a wonderful thought. I, well, I, I was going to say I buried my father. I didn't. I was stuck here during COVID. And uh, when I went back to my dad's grave, I just, I thought, he's not here. He's not here. But one day his body will be raised. And how do I know that? Because it's promised. It's guaranteed. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you can be raised from the dead. That's, I mean, that itself is such a tremendous hope. There are so many other things in there, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for just now because we'll come back and, and look at the hope for creation. But I'll, maybe I'll leave you with this um, wee story. Uh, I ended up doing a number of debates and stuff about same-sex marriage. And I was asked by a Baptist church down in London, in Kensington, West Kensington, uh, would I come and do an outreach event? And I said, yes, I will, but can I do it on same-sex marriage? And the pastor said, how do you do an outreach event on same-sex marriage? Well, I said, I'm not going to argue about it. I'm not going to, you know, that's, I, it's not a, I'm not trying to win a culture war here. But I said, if you do this and you get me a decent opponent, your church will be filled with LGBT activists because this is the number one area in the UK for LGBT, this particular constituency. And he said, okay, I could lose my job, but let's, let's go for it. So we did it. And the church was absolutely packed. It was brilliant. It was one of the best nights I've ever had. My opponent was the government spokesperson on, on gay marriage. And um, I remember so many of the questions, so many different things happened. But uh, one in particular was, if you can imagine this bizarre scenario where half of the audience were basically West Indian Pentecostals and the other half were LGBT radical activists, uh, and this West Indian Pentecostal stood up and said, I have a question for the brothers. I said, go ahead, man. Go for it. What is your hope? And my opponent, who was a politician, stood up and said, well, my hope as a liberal Democrat is that we raise the uh, uh, tax threshold to £10,000. 
And I looked at him and thought, I can't believe you just said that. And I said, oh, come on, man, get a life. That's your hope? Seriously? That's what you live for? And everyone laughed because they knew how ridiculous it was. And even he smiled, you know. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you something. Forgive the cliche. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And all the West Indian Pentecostals, this half, yay, hallelujah, whoa. And all the LGBT, what did he just say? What? <laughs> What's this about blood? You know, they're going to kill us. We warned you about these radical Christians, you know, and all this. And I said, Look, guys, let me explain this. Let me explain this. I said, without Christ, I have no hope in this world. And actually, neither do you. Because every hope that you offer is hopeless. It's going to go. But with Christ, you can't take it away from me. You can't. No matter what happens. Not death, nor life, nor anything else in all creation, as we'll see when we get to the end of Romans 8. And do you understand how liberating that is? It means you're not, you, you don't hate other people or, you know, have a go at other people because you're scared they're going to do something to you. You're in Christ and it's freeing and it's liberating and it's wonderful. At the end of that talk, a man came up to me and he said, David, I'm going to um, say something to you and I don't want you to take it as a compliment. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm almost certainly bound to take it as a compliment now. He said, I'm an LGBT activist, he said, and I want to say this to you. If you'd been my vicar when I was at school, I'd probably still be a Christian. And I said, well, I do take that as a compliment. He said, but no, he said, I don't want to be a Christian. I hate Christians. You make it sound so reasonable. You make it sound so good. You make it sound, he said, I've got to go and debrief all my people and tell them it's not like this. Because you offered something that's way beyond anything that we have. And that's what we've got. That's what we've got. It's just brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant you can come and share here. But what you, what, how do you share as a community? Is that you all like each other? Well, I hope not. You know, I, I hope you, you, if, it, if you were just with people who you like, it's just people like you, really. You, the beautiful thing about the Christian church is it brings in people from all different backgrounds, people who you might really not like at all, you would prefer not to be with, but because of your hope in Christ, you're united as brothers and sisters, and you can work something absolutely wonderful and people see that see that's the point by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another it's our hope in christ which makes our witness so effective because it's real and people ultimately want reality so don't fake it be real be realistic and we've only skimmed what's there but we'll see in the second part uh, a big question for the culture is the whole question of the creation and we'll see what the bible has to say about that we trust you have enjoyed our bible talk from today if you have any questions or comments from today's talk please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au also we love to welcome new people at exchange church in person so consider yourself invited to be with us